Welcome to the Veridical Podcast. I'm Jack Cesare. Alright. It's been a while since I've been able to record an episode. I'm in the end of a semester for school, and as everyone knows, I'm very concerned about my grades. I want to make sure I can get out of DTS, prosper well at another institution uh, after I get this degree. So my schoolwork is my priority. But in my personal life, and in the world outside, there are a lot of updates. So some good news first, I've made some upgrades to the podcast setup. I got my hands on another mic, got a two-way interface, all of the equipment, and I'm going to start reaching out to do interviews. Uh, I believe I may be able to get my hands on some people that are authors of some of the books I plan to review, and other people are just very interesting specimens to review on a podcast. So I've been thinking about reaching out to one of the owners of one of the crystal shops or the tarot card selling shops. I believe the owners of these shops just have to be full of juicy content for this podcast. And if I ever could get my hands on one of them, I would love to interview them in a way that is not directly charging. I'm very inspired by the interview with Lex Friedman and Kanye West. Everyone's familiar that Kanye West is an absolute lunatic these days. But Lex Friedman was able to sit him down and talk to him for about three hours. And Kanye was able to say a lot more on that podcast than any other program. And I think it's because Lex is so reserved, so calm, and doesn't make deliberately charged questions. Now, Kanye is someone that deserves a lot of scrutiny, a lot of criticism. And honestly, it's a hesitation to admit he even deserves a platform to speak of. But regardless, Kanye is an interesting person. No one can deny that right now. And so Lex was able to get a really good document of content from him. Now, strangely, Sam Harris thought it was a terrible interview and that Lex should not have done it. Well, I disagree with Sam here. I believe that was an excellent interview. I believe Lex composed himself very well and was able to get a lot more information out of Kanye. It really serves as almost a psychological study of Kanye. When you watch Kanye on Pierce Morgan or any of these other news outlets, understandably, the interviewers tend to attack Kanye quite quickly. And again, this is all understandable, but it shuts down any interesting conversation with Kanye. If you really want to learn what's going on in this guy's mind, you have to at least give him the feeling that he's not being attacked, right? Whenever he's calm, whenever he feels like he's in a safe place, he will then reveal the most interesting ideas. Now, of course, again, he's a psychopath. He's insane. These aren't interesting in the sense that we can learn from them, at least not get anything useful from them. But we have to realize no one important or of influence is taking advice from Kanye right now. No one with more than two brain cells is listening to him for guidance, right? He can just purely be a great case study of how one of the, I'm personally not the biggest fan, but how one of the arguably greatest hip-hop artists of our day completely turned into a lunatic. And not surprisingly, only a couple of years after becoming a Christian, 
I don't think there's a coincidence there. I really do believe his turning to Christianity had something to do with his fall. Now, to this day, I'm still a Christian, but there's a lot to be said about what Christianity in the Western world can do to someone's psyche. And we will realize this uh, when we discuss the book we're reading today. Some more updates in the world. Um, not updating y'all as if you are out of the loop. Just things that, unfortunately, I don't have the time to cover at this moment, but certainly deserve being mentioned. Trump, as of today, got charged with, I think, 34 different things. Um, surprisingly, none of it has to do with any of his actions in presidency. They're all um, regarding the hush money to different porn stars um, before his election to um, maintain popularity. I don't know what he thought he was hiding. Certainly we all knew he was up to promiscuous activity with women. Regardless, watching people's reactions on Instagram is truly a sight. The amount of people jumping to this man's defense as if we uh, should never charge a government official or an ex-president. Right? Yet, yet the same people saying that were cheering lock her up regarding Hillary Clinton. Right? These are the people saying we should imprison Fauci. These are the same people saying Biden belongs in prison. But yeah, we shouldn't uh, imprison any former president or um, government representative. Another exciting development is I had the privilege of attending a Charlie Kirk conference. Now, I have a lot to say about this, and I'm not going to say it here. Maybe I will near the end. I'll certainly bring it up. This was a spectacle. This was one of the craziest environments I've ever been in. Okay, when you sit there in the middle of a Charlie Kirk conference, you are observing one of the biggest downfalls of American Christianity having sex with politics. When I was at this conference, I got to learn about the five fake religions of the world, one of them being the pagan cult of earth worship. Okay, well, that, well that's just environmentalists. If you're an environmentalist and you're proposing a policy that may even slightly increase taxes, okay, well, that's pagan earth worship, right? Stop what you're doing. Get back on the fossil fuel train. I learned about the pagan cult of worshiping experts. Right? The, the amount of anti-institution rhetoric at this conference was insane. Right? Where do people expect to be without institutions? There's plenty to criticize about our institutions. And no doubt our institutions have turned up uh, bad reports, inaccurate reports, uh, quite a bit in the past recent years. It appears a lot of our institutions have semi-sold out to the woke mob. But this doesn't mean we should not maintain institutions. As Sam Harris brings up, this is something we need to repair, not abandon. I have no idea how America, entering such technological advancements, expects to make do on truth and reality with Substack newsletter and podcast. If you plan to get your information about the next pandemic from Donald Trump or Brett Weinstein, 
or fucking Candace Owens, you're insane. If we are deciding that we should not correct and improve the CDC, but abandon it because it's full of demonic Satanist liberals trying to poison America, and instead we should listen to only low-level conservative media, we will disintegrate as a country. But again, this is exactly what Charlie Kirk wants. He wants us to listen to him for advice. We shouldn't get our pandemic guidance from the CDC or the government. No, no, we should get it from Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens. We shouldn't get our information about the war in Ukraine from the media. No, no, no. Charlie Kirk will guide us through that. And of course, when Putin says he's denazifying Ukraine, well, people are starting to pick up on that. Now, of course, the Ukrainian government is not Nazis. In fact, I see an awkward dissection here of a lot of Christians are saying we shouldn't support the war in Ukraine because Zelensky is way too liberal, as if his views on transgenderism validate whether his country should be bombed or not by a clear antagonist. It is not hard to imagine how these roles would look if they were reversed and America was not the number one superpower in the world. So picture back to the Revolutionary War when France came and helped us overthrow the British. Well, what if France said, well, Britain started those colonies. They are British. Maybe Britain does own that land. In fact, I heard some of those revolutionaries threw a lot of tea overboard. Well, that's destruction of property. These people are just rioters. We should not support rioters, people that love dysfunction. Okay, it's easy to imagine that America may not have been so well off in the Revolutionary War in that sense. Now, is there a discussion to be had about how much money, whether arms should be sent? What should the stance be? Okay, there's room for discussion in there. My point is, Charlie Kirk is not the authority to talk on that subject. Of course, one can be comforted that no one of real influence is listening to Charlie Kirk. I say that hesitantly because I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of politicians that praise Charlie Kirk. In fact, we know of one at least, Donald Trump, attends many Charlie Kirk rallies. It appears Charlie Kirk just knows how to win the minds of intellectuals. Now, I'm not going to talk much on the rally, just know it was disappointing and depressing more than it was anger enticing. I mean, of course there were moments when I was energetic and critical and quick to talk or say something. In fact, I went up to the microphone and tried to reason with the unreasonable. Um, But as I drove away, I left just depressed that so many people, 2.1 million, can follow this guy and believe he holds the right answers to the situation of America today. It really is just sad at the end. It appears my preamble is approaching 12 minutes, so I'll save all my grievances for another time. There's just been too many updates, too much to talk about. But again, there's always time in the future to discuss it. All right. On to today's book. Today's book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, by Christian Dumais. Okay, this book 
Um, I was hesitant to read it at first. I thought it was just going to be some far-left complaint about white people. And um, it's a little bit of that. But it's a lot more intellectual and factual than I was ready for. I was actually pleasantly surprised by... I guess pleasantly is not the right word. Um, I was pleasantly impressed and uh, depressingly surprised at how much is uh, how much information has been withheld from me from my Christian counterparts. I mean, the amount of heroes we have that have so many skeletons in the closet. When I bring this up with my professors at DTS, I'm often met with, well, everyone has skeletons in the closet. And if you looked at everyone's lives, everyone would be uh, completely reprehensible. But I believe there's some of these Christian leaders that do it with a certain level of panache that deserves more criticism than it got. I also ended the book with a lot of respect for Christian. Um, she, like me, though obviously on a much grander level, comes from the Christian faith, is an active member in the Christian faith, yet has a lot to criticize about it. Uh, this is always such a breath of fresh air when you see someone from within their own tribe criticizing it. Uh, the hyperpolarization and hyperpartisanship of today's society leaves very little room for self-criticism, as if you self-criticize, you are almost betraying your tribe. Obviously, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but look at what happened under the Trump presidency. If you were a Republican within Trump's vicinity, and you even lay down one small increment of criticism, I mean, you were, from a conservative stance, canceled. So, I'll read a little bit about Christian here. Uh, she's a professor of history at Calvin University. She's the author of A New Gospel for Women. She's written for Christianity Today, Christian Sanctuary, and the Washington Post, and Religion and Politics, among other publications. Um, and she has written a very academic document here. Again, this is not just complaints. Um, the amount of notes, footnotes, citations, and sources she draws from is impressive. Um, her grasp on history uh, leaves little to discuss. I mean, she covers so much. When I was sitting here making notes for this podcast, I realized if I wanted to cover everything I really wanted to cover, the podcast would be four to five hours long. And obviously I don't intend on making y'all endure all that. So I'm just going to say I'll cover as many high points as I can. But certainly, like every other book review I do on here, I will not exhaust the book and its contents. Now that's, again, true for every book I've reviewed, but it is most true for this book so far. I mean, even the high points. There's too many high points in this book. There are so many explanations for how we got where we are today in the Christian church and its marriage to politics. There are so many facets. Anyone on the internet claiming to know how we got here today and can do it within the length of a tweet is delusional. Uh, this book really serves as a great guide uh, to explain how we got where we are today. It's not coming from some angry, atheists trying to demonize Christianity. No, this is coming from an active Christian herself, a Protestant, I might add, 
So the criticism is, to a good extent, reliable. In the podcast, we're going to discuss Trump and his promises and the costs they had, the idea of hijacking the faith, selling out of pastors during the Trump administration, the laws of Victorian Christianity, a lot of key figures like Graham, John Wayne, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Falwell, and many others. Uh, we'll be discussing Christian warfare and the use of language and how important linguistics is, is to get your, uh, in getting your point across, uh, how eschatology plays a role in policy, and many other topics. Now, starting off in the beginning of the book, she briefly touches on Donald Trump in the introduction, but the uh, first hundred pages or so is all stuff that happened in the 20th century. But uh, in the introduction, she brings up the question of how did the moral majority, people that champion uh, family values and asking what would Jesus do, uh, end up voting for the complete antithesis of this? Now, many people know that it involves a mixture of abortion, views on homosexuality, uh, economic values, but um, there was a lot more to this picture than we once thought. Uh, I used to champion the idea that Trump was the problem. He was the progenitor of a terrible culture. Uh, he initiated his own cult. Uh, after reading this, I don't believe that anymore. Uh, Christian reveals how, I gotta, I'm just going to refer to her by Dumay, because her name being Christian will not make this easy. Dumay reveals that Trump is more of the response, not the progenitor of a problem here in America. Um, a culture has been building up for almost over a hundred years, uh, honestly before that, but we really see it beginning to evolve in the early 1900s with World War I. To summarize, Dumay writes, by the time Trump arrived proclaiming himself their savior, conservative white evangelicals had already traded a faith that privileges humility and elevates the least of these for one that derides gentleness as the province of wusses. She then says, in reality, evangelicals did not cast their vote despite their beliefs, but because of them. One thing Dumay writes about, and I'm really proud she touches it, because it's been a topic that I've been trying to make more relevant for my community around me, is the idea of hermeneutics. Right? How you read your Bible is important. Reading it at, quote-unquote, face value, when it's not meant to be read at face value, is an important distinction to be made. She covers how theological illiteracy means that many evangelicals hold views traditionally defined as heresy, calling into question the centrality of theology to evangelicalism generally. It's important to note that I'm not using Christian and evangelical interchangeably here. Evangelicalism uh, is a whole culture. No doubt a lot of it is innocuous, and no doubt a lot of it is done because people simply love Jesus. Not every facet of evangelicalism is dangerous, but we don't need to worry about throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. Because again, Christian culture is different than evangelical culture. You can get rid of evangelical culture and maintain solid Christian theology. Evangelical culture is, of course, a synthetic device. One thing Dumay covers in the introduction is the idea of pastors selling out. And of course this happens 
on a large scale, and of course that's a human trait, it's not distinct to pastors, but pastors are held to a higher level of criticism. Right? If there's one class of people that we should rely on to not sell out to a party or candidate, well, it's pastors. Right? But a lot of these pastors have been selling out uh, on massive levels for over 150 years, and it's caused a lot of murky waters in Christian communities. Now, I believe taking a side is one thing. Of course, not taking a side is, in one way, taking a side. But when you, as a pastor, say that by not taking your side, your Christianity comes into question, well, there is grounds to be concerned about that pastor. Right? I, I'm currently following people on Instagram, posting clips proudly of pastors saying things such as, if you're a Democrat, you cannot be a Christian. Well, this idea is the idea of selling out. Okay? And this is the idea that's going to erode the value of Christianity in the modern culture. And there's a lot to say on abortion. I've never actually been able to exhale all my beliefs about it. No doubt they're certainly evolving. But right there, what I just said, the idea that my views on abortion are malleable is enough to get me ostracized by many Christian communities, even ones I'm currently in. This is what a hyper-allegiance to earthly synthetic devices looks like. Right? When your pastors are completely aligned with a political party, or a politician to be more specific, there is a lot of slippery slopes. Now, I may come off as a hypocrite, as I've often advocated for pastors criticizing Donald Trump. But to act like Donald Trump is a standard issue, you know, small government, pro-gun, and pro-free speech president, right? To, to imagine that he's just like Mitt Romney is insane. And not only that, Trump, and I worry about deviating far off topic here into my Trump derangement syndrome, uh, Trump is just clearly anti-Christian. Right? This is someone that saw Christianity and knew how to hijack it. But this is the antithesis, as we mentioned, of Christian values. Now, criticizing people is welcome. We should criticize bad ideas. And Trump is ripe with bad ideas. My point is, when it comes down to the level of congregation, if you are a pastor, and not even shamefully supporting Trump, but shamelessly supporting him. I think there's a problem there. Right? Even if you were to say something along the lines of, he's the lesser of two evils. I'm going to vote for him because I don't have enough political knowledge on the two different parties. And so I'm going to close my eyes, cry, and vote for Trump. That is understandable. I hear that. It makes sense. I believe it's a weak argument. I believe the writing was on the wall with Donald Trump. But you get these pastors that are championing him. Okay, that needs to be criticized. And that is precisely what Dumais is uh, pointing out here, is the championing of Donald Trump and other figures like Trump. And uh, take my word for it, as we go through this book, we're going to find figures that are just as surprising and just as exotic as Donald Trump himself. But the question Dumais is trying to answer is how did we get here? 
So begins the fear of the loss of masculinity in the early 1900s. Victorian Christianity, which is a, I guess you could summarize it as saying a more domesticated form of Christianity, had to be criticized. Uh, I don't believe that. I'm saying the culture believed that. And uh, Dumais covers how in 1900, Roosevelt, um, Teddy Roosevelt, um, in the Spanish-American War, um, began rallying people behind Christian values to advance his political views and military views. Uh, I plan on skipping over uh, Teddy Roosevelt. I believe the interesting stuff begins with Billy Graham. Billy Graham's response to Christianity in his early life was that it was feminine. Religion in general was a unmanly thing. So when he became a Christian, to criticize that uh, previous belief he held, he made Christianity out to be hyper-masculine. And um, so he defined the Christian life as total war and Jesus being the great commander. So it became a mission for Billy Graham to show how masculinity was directly compatible with Christian teaching. Now, of course, I believe masculinity is compatible with Christian teaching, but it depends on how we define masculinity. If masculinity is favoring warfare, fighting, and shunning feelings, then no, Christianity is not compatible with masculinity. And so it appears with Billy Graham's definition of masculinity, he's up for a tough mission. A common theme that'll be brought up throughout this book is the patriarchy and how a lot of these figures um, approach it in quite disturbing ways. And starting with Billy Graham, I'm just going to read here directly from the book so I don't mischaracterize him. Because Graham believed that God had cursed women to be under man's rule, he believed that wives must submit to husband's authority. Graham acknowledged that this would come as a shock to certain dictatorial wives, and he didn't hesitate to offer Christian housewives helpful tips. When a husband comes home from work, run out and kiss him. Give him love at any cost. Cultivate modesty and the delicacy of youth. Be attractive. Keep a clean house and don't nag and complain all the time. He had advice for men too. A man was God's representative. I should note here that I guess Graham implied that women were not. Anyways, the spiritual head of households, the protector, and the provider of the home. Also, husbands should remember to give wives a box of candy from time to time, or an orchid, or maybe even roses. There is a clear asymmetry here with Graham uh, between men and women and the expectations. A common sub-theme within the theme of patriarchy that's going to come up with a lot of the figures in the book is the topic of sex and the position it puts a lot of women in uh, even when they're uncomfortable with certain acts. Moving on, we see the development of Graham's career with the conversion of country singer Stuart Hamlin. So Stuart was just a secular country singer championing those good old country values. So things like women, trucks, drinking, things of uh, that nature. But he got saved on one of Graham's revivals. Now, Stuart was a, a prominent figure, and so this really boosted the clout of Billy Graham. Now, as a Christian, and like many other Christians around me, we all rejoice and are very happy 
when someone like Stuart Hamlin uh, converts to Christianity, it's always good news. However, you expect to see a change. But that's the exact point Dume is trying to make here is there wasn't a change. Yet, Graham was able to ride this train of having Stuart Hamlin uh, be saved under him uh, all the way up to meetings with the presidency. So that's what happened in 1950. Graham got to meet with um, President Truman, who was a Democrat, and you begin to see a lot of the conflicts between Christians and Democrats in this time. Uh, Dumay summarizes it by talking about how Graham dressed pretty odd, had a very awkward prayer, and ended up insulting President Truman, saying that he wasn't Christ-like enough, and um, took a knee in front of the White House on camera after it was over. It just um, did not go well. But Eisenhower would soon come into presidency and uh, really capitalize on Graham. He had Graham select Bible verses for his inaugural address, and Eisenhower was actually gifted a Bible by Billy Graham. And this serves as just a beautiful picture of how um, big Christian leaders can oftentimes be quite intertwined with politics. And again, Christians should have political perspectives. No doubt I do. And Christians shouldn't um, not converse with politics. And if you have the opportunity to talk to a president, I mean, you take that. But as a religious leader, you should note your precariousness in the public's view. And your public view really is important. And what you do with that and who you choose to support, what presidents you choose to meet with and get Bibles to is really important. I'm not a huge critic of Eisenhower, a brave man, a good president, as far as I know. <laughs> Anyone can share with me uh, counterfacts to that. But we really begin to see uh, Graham arriving at a position of uh, quite a high up echelon in American society, both secular and religious. No doubt there are some things we can criticize about Eisenhower. He's one of the ones that jump-started the American industrial complex after World War II. Um, Eisenhower also decided it would be a good idea to say that a strong military would keep Americans free to worship God, as if you can only worship God under a safe country. That contrasts really poorly with where we see Christianity flourishing in the modern day. We also observe Billy Graham supporting very strange policies during the war. It's interesting because before this time, the American military, in the view of the evangelicals, was a place of depravity. It's a place of debauchery. But yet, there was a weird shift around this time where the military began to be viewed as a very esteemed position by evangelicals. Uh, I believe the switch happened because of people like Graham having such political ties. During the Vietnam War, Billy Graham was very tight with President Nixon. And, um, of course, this didn't go well when the Watergate scandal broke. But in 1969, Graham sent a 13-page letter to President Nixon. Um, and it had uh, a lot of policy scenarios that were suggestions by Graham. 
and some of them even abandoned the Geneva Conventions. So you see Billy Graham here was not the Christian saint we all made him out to be. This doesn't mean that his revivals weren't beneficial to the Christian faith in America. No doubt a lot of people are Christians today because of Billy Graham and have raised good Christian kids because of Billy Graham. But again, ideas such as abandoning the Geneva Conventions deserve criticism, harsh criticism. Following Billy Graham, Jack Hiles gets introduced. Um, like many of these other people, um, there's crazy people out there. But it only becomes a problem when these crazy people get large followings. And uh, that's exactly what Jack Hiles had happened to him. Um, so he grew up in Indiana, took charge of its first Baptist church, and he quickly built the church into one of the largest independent fundamental Baptist churches in the nation at least for that time. Hiles said and wrote many strange, strange things. I'm going to read straight from the page here. Hiles' book included a section on how to make a man out of a boy. Boys needed to be taught to be winners. In quotes, this is how we get our General MacArthur's. This is how Billy Sundays are made. Teaching boys how to be good losers left you with a generation of young men who didn't want to fight for their country and were instead, quote, willing to let the strongest nation on earth bow down in shame before a little nation like North Vietnam. It was up to Christian parents to rear a new generation of men, and to this end they should make boys, play with boys and with boys' toys and games, with guns, cars, baseballs, basketballs, and footballs. Boys who engaged in feminine activities, he warned, often ended up as homosexuals. This is just good old-fashioned masculinity from that time period, but it's not isolated. It's being seeped into Christianity, which again is kind of the main topic. You have two competing ideologies getting in bed with each other, and Jack Hiles is one of those big champions. It says here Hiles bought his own son a pair of boxing gloves when he was five, an air rifle at 13, and a 22 at 15. Dumay notes when a neighbor boy insulted Hiles' daughter, he encouraged his son to let him have it, and walked away as his son beat the boy bloody. Such violence was sanctified. God pity this weak-kneed generation which stands for nothing, fights for nothing, and dies for nothing. Jack Hiles is not a fringe pastor for that time, or today, really. Hiles wasn't an outlier, and that's precisely the point, is this became kind of the general view that Christians held, or, again, evangelicals held at the time. And, of course, this leads on throughout all of the 1900s, and is still persistent today, but in different forms. Some more lunacy from Hiles here. Hiles also advocated for corporal punishment of children, even infants. Spanking should last at least 10 to 15 minutes, and should leave stripes as necessary. Spanking infants is already atrocious. I mean, spanking kids in general is confusing. But spanking infants is a new level. And 10 to 15 minutes, you just can't imagine the trauma that would come out of that. I mean, well, you, you actually can. They probably grow up to be just like their parents who do that. Dumay uh, will certainly bring up Jack Hiles later in the book. Uh, she then brings up John Wayne, the namesake of the book. And uh, similarly to Stuart Hamblin, the gentleman who got saved under Billy Graham, uh, John Wayne became in a parallel alignment to him. 
just the face of Christianity or Christian masculinity for the time. Um, John Wayne was antithetical to a lot of the Christian values, but that goes without saying. He was not only a misogynist, but also a raging racist. He writes here in a 1971 interview with Playboy, John Wayne was particularly harsh in his assessment of the blacks, or colored, or whatever they want to call themselves, they certainly aren't Caucasian. With a lot of blacks, there's quite a bit of resentment along with their descent, and possibly rightly so, but we can't all of a sudden get down on our knees and turn everything over to the leadership of the blacks. I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility. I don't believe in giving authority and positions of leadership and judgment to irresponsible people. And then he goes on to talk about the Native Americans, saying, I don't feel we did wrong in taking this great country away from the Native Americans. Our so-called stealing of this country from them was just a matter of survival. People needed land, and the Indians were selfishly trying to keep it for themselves. Now, we can't sit back and say something like Charlie Kirkwood, which is something along the lines of, well, they were a man of their time. Okay, this excuse is used to justify the actions of many people. And if we think about it, philosophically, it doesn't line up. For the militant pro-lifer, they are not willing to concede that pro-choicers of today are just people of their time. Right? Moral issues can't be settled on that. And this is the killer to it all. You can look back in these time periods and find, quote, people of that time arguing for quite the opposite thing and holding views that criticize this. Right? We can look back in the time of slavery, where a lot of the alt-right heroes lie and uh, get justified with the saying of they were just a man of their time. And we can find heroes, complete abolitionists of slavery in that time period. Right? And this goes against the whole rhetoric of objective morality. If you're going to argue for objective morality and say that it is um, accessible um, in isolation, away from society, if you can reason to it, then these excuses don't line up. Regardless, John Wayne serves as an image of someone who does not align with the Christian camp, yet gets drafted into it by Christian nationalists to justify their views on masculinity, the patriarchy, and military operations. To summarize this chapter, it ends with a very depressing quote from a Baptist scholar, Alan Bean who says, The unspoken mantra of post-war evangelicalism was simple. Jesus can save your soul, but John Wayne will save your ass. Chapter 3 really gets into how evangelical culture views women. A lot of people say that complementarianism and egalitarianism are two equal ideas. As I've discussed many times on this podcast, ideas are not equal. Right? Two ideas that are very different in nature, do not have equal moral worth, right? This happens many times in the church, particularly around science. We'll say, whether you believe in evolution, whether you do not believe in evolution, that's not a big deal. It's not a salvation issue, so we're going to table it. We'll never know the right answer, right? Same thing with egalitarian and complementarianism. You have these church leaders like Mark Driscoll, basically 
making creating a theology right right this this isn't an idea this is a theology oriented around making women submit to their husbands and not using I'm not using the word submit the way it's used in the bible I'm saying submit as in you are essentially property of the husband some people think that I'm mischaracterizing it but I've been in these cultures I've been around these hyper-evangelical Southern Baptist ideologies, and that is what they are kind of getting at. Women are a gift to men, and that's exactly what Dumay titles chapter 3. It is titled God's Gift to Man. She opens the chapter discussing a woman named Maribel Morgan, who was around in the 1970s, and she wrote a very famous book, the title of which is The Total Woman. And this book sold, I believe, over 500,000 copies in the first year alone. Dume notes that eventually it sold 10 million total copies. And like I said earlier, these movements, these ideologies, they're not fringe. This is a high overarching narrative in American Christian subculture. I'll go ahead and read straight out of the book here. So it says, most of Morgan's homework assignments for readers and seminar attendees involved sex. A wife was to love her husband unconditionally, and that meant making herself sexually available to him. The Bible, after all, said not to cheat each other of normal sexual intercourse and to let her breast satisfy thee at all times. God understood women, and he knew they would probably use the prized possession of sex to manipulate men. That's why he warned against rationing it out. Morgan assigned women the task of making themselves available to their husband for seven nights in a row. Be the seducer rather than the seduced. She offered numerous and very specific tips to help wives spice up their sex lives, and also a word of caution. When meeting one's husband at the door wearing a risque costume, be absolutely sure that the person at the door was in fact one's husband. Now there's nothing wrong with having a healthy sex wife with one's spouse. That is, I mean, that's a big part of marriage right there. That makes a lot of sense. But Morgan had more crazy ideas. And so she writes, If a father was absent, a boy might start to identify too much with his mother and begin to develop certain feminine qualities on a subconscious level, opening the door to homosexuality. Morgan had the idea that women should fully submit to their husbands. This, in a way, removes the identity from the woman. At least that's what I believe. Now, I'm no woman. But I do suspect that's what the nature of it is. If your whole identity is found in your husband, and there's nothing for you to personally endeavor into in constructing your identity, then you are almost not a person. You are a vestige of your husband. And this goes back to Old Testament marriage. right? The reason the widow is mentioned so much in the Bible, and the widow is not mentioned that much today, Widows are taken care of a lot more today than they were back then. Widows can be more self-dependent. Widows can get a job. right? But widows back in the time of the Old Testament were nothing without their husband. Now certainly this is not the way God intended it to be. Women should not need a husband in order to have a life in the world, in order to not decay on the side of the street. Now thankfully, we don't live in the Old Testament times anymore. That culture is past. Right? Women and widows can have a life outside of a man. 
But according to Maribel Morgan, once you're married, you are no longer your own. You are technically gods, but you're also your husband's. That is what total devotion entails. Now, Maribel Morgan had some crazy ideas, but the next woman, Phyllis Shafley, again, I guess that's how you say her name, she took it up to another level. So Phyllis was not even an evangelical. She was a Catholic. She writes, what feminists failed to understand was that women like to be housewives and homemakers. Most women would rather cuddle a baby than a typewriter or a factory machine. Now that may be right, I guess. Can't really say for sure. But what is important to focus on is the affirmative. She is affirming that most women want this. Now even if that is true, saying this implies that women that don't want to do this are in the wrong. Okay, there's obviously nothing wrong with a woman wanting to stay home. Someone should take care of kids when you have kids. I'm definitely a proponent of, if you're going to have children, one of the two people should be home so the kids are not raised by someone else. But what they're implying here is not that women should stay home, but that if you don't, you are wrong morally. You're going against God's design. And it only gets more and more crazy. So, of course, this is a book about how politics got intertwined with a lot of the ideologies. Interestingly, Dumay covers abortion here and how a lot of the ideologies and beliefs about abortion shifted, even among Christians. I'm just going to read uh, right out of the book here. Though late into the ERA, Schlafly was already concerned about abortion in 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade, in part because she was Catholic. Catholics had a long history of condemning abortions, even when women's lives were at stake. Some fundamentalist pastors agreed, though they weren't eager to cooperate with Catholics on the issue. But most evangelicals were far less certain. The Bible didn't offer specific advice on the topic. Many evangelicals disapproved of the abortion on demand, but not in the case of rape or incest, where fetal abnormalities were present, or when a woman's life was at risk. In 1968, Christianity Today considered the question of therapeutic abortion. Was it a blessing or murder? They gave no definitive answer. As late as 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution urging states to expand access to abortion. Dumay then goes on to note that the only time abortion started to get demonized and viewed as murder is when it got intertwined with the feminist movements. And, just like many ideologies today on the left, got linked to communism. This is certainly one of the most exhausting topics I have to endure today. People that have never picked up Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. People that have no idea about the history of Russia and the proletarian and bourgeoisie uh, relationships, yet they see something they don't agree with, and it's communist. I just watched a clip of Marjorie Taylor Greene calling Mitch McConnell a communist. Right? This is insanity. These people have no idea what communism even is. Now, I'm not a fan of communism. I'm a fan of capitalism. Certainly not American capitalism. I think America is more of a oligarchy-style capitalism, but we'll table that for today. But just the constant rhetoric that everything the left does is because they're trying to expand their communist agenda. This is insanity. 
And this is similar to what Charlie Kirk does and on a grander scale, more relevant Republicans like Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, individuals like this. If you want to make sure your cult will not investigate the other party, just say it's communism. They won't investigate it. They won't do their research. They won't do their homework. And you can just do this to any topic, right? Just say, hey, Beto O'Rourke, communist. He will lose <laughs> so many votes just by that. People will never even know what Beto looks like. They'll never know what his voice sounds like, but will not need to because he's a communist. You can do this to anything, right? This is how you play tennis without the net. Back on topic, if you want to know anything about Phyllis Schlafly, just Google her. Look at her writing and look at how much support she had. She wasn't a fringe writer. She was a very prolific writer. At least that's what America's book sales said. Dumay also covers how a lot of these writers influence child discipline. But one thing I want to point out here is that these writers were not doing it for the sake of the home life, but the country. If you're not raising good kids and disciplining them biblically, which meant, of course, not sparing the rod, you weren't just doing your family a disservice, nor just the kid a disservice. No, you were damaging the country. And the communists, the communists were going to win if you weren't disciplining your kid. Now, another famous person that Dume covers here is Jerry Falwell. Now, many people have heard the name. Many people may not be familiar. I believe Dume is referencing Jerry Falwell Sr. here in the book. But Jr. was the president at Liberty University, one of, if not the biggest Christian university in the nation. And I shall note, also, the last university to desegregate. In fact, I believe it was founded for that reason. I could be wrong. I don't want to misquote it here. So again, I believe Dumay is covering Senior here in the book. Junior, on the other hand, got caught having gay sex with a younger man, I believe, if I'm correct. All I know is he caused a lot of trauma for the individuals at Liberty. There's a lot of scandals. And I believe his health is at risk now. I don't want to spend too much time on him. We'll just cover what Dumay writes about Senior here in the book. Falwell fashioned a Christianity that was well-suited to this local context, one that was anti-communist, pro-segregationist, and infused throughout with militant masculinity. Where I believe Falwell is most guilty is his social views. And uh, he writes about the decay of America. I believe Falwell also championed the term moral majority. So we should watch how we use uh, that term. And he documents the signs of decay in the country. I'll give this list. Signs of decay abounded. Welfareism. Income transfer programs. Divorce. Abortion. Homosexuality. Secular humanism in public schools. Federally funded daycare. And the Domestic Violence Prevention and Treatment Act. The Domestic Violence Act was especially insidious for it would do away with physical punishment as a mode of child-rearing and eliminate the husband as the head of the family. Another bill pending in the Senate at that time would enable women to sue husbands for rape, he claimed. Now, I'm no fan of divorce, but I think divorce is the right choice at times, and I'm not going to get into my thoughts on abortion. But there's some really uncontroversial topics here that were too controversial for him. Federally funded daycare, 
That's a sign that your country is in moral decay, right? Stopping you from beating your children and allowing your wife to sue if you raped her. These are signs of moral decay, according to Falwell, right? And again, just like Morgan, just like Schlafly, just like Graham's ideas, these were not controversial. That is the big takeaway I encourage all the listeners to have regarding this book. These silly ideas, these bad ideas, are not fringe, and they're not fringe today. You may see mostly liberal and leftist things on the media, right? But truly, a lot of these evangelical conservatives maintain these thoughts. Now, I don't want to do a disservice. I'll say most people believe wives should be able to sue for rape. But ideas like federally funded daycare is a threat. Welfareism is a threat. Not being able to beat the shit out of your children is a threat. How are you going to make a man if you can't beat him up? This is the thought of many people today. And we must criticize bad ideas. If you hear a bad idea and don't confront that bad idea, you're allowing that bad idea to potentially spread. Now, I hear many bad ideas in my day-to-day walks, and I can't confront all of them. And so I'll admit I got, uh, I got weak sides. But we should try to confront as many as possible. And of course, I'll add the obvious point here that they have to be people that are able to converse. Many of these people are just simply not good at communication, or they don't want to be. These liberal values that we should champion, a good government that looks out for the welfare of its citizens, helping single mothers and low-income families put their children through public schools with free lunch and federally funded daycare, opportunities, rights, and encouragement for women to report sexual abuse, rape, or anything else. These ideas are strangely in direct opposition to the moral majority. That moral majority, I'm adding, is doing this all under the banner of Christianity. So when you oppose these silly ideas, you're not opposing a political idea. You're not opposing a person. You're opposing God Almighty, Yahweh, the one that took the Israelites out of Egypt and part of the Red Sea. You're challenging him when you try to make federally funded daycare. This is a psychological war against rationality. You begin to see another adoption of politics into evangelical culture with the televangelist James Robinson. Robinson would go on to be a major supporter of Ronald Reagan, and he said that not voting is a sin against God. This is a clear example of what I said earlier. Your ideology coming from God means opposing it is opposing God. Reagan would go on to do many subliminally racist and overtly racist things, like promoting states' rights. And if you don't know what that entails, that entails a time around the Civil War where states would be able to decide if they were going to have slavery or not. So it became a common trope around politicians to advocate for states' rights, uh, which didn't directly imply slavery or racism, but it implied the ability for states to choose for themselves. So you can see how that would cheat the system in a way. And it's around the 1980s 
that Dumay notes, the controversial party switch. You'll hear a lot of people on the right saying, well, the Democrats supported Jim Crow, the Democrats supported slavery. But uh, there was a party switch, and it happened around 1980. She notes that the Democrat Party had become the party of liberals, African Americans, and feminists, and the Republican Party the party of conservatives, traditionalists, and most importantly, segregationalists. There's another book I want to cover here on the podcast called The Color of Law, which discusses redlining and how politicians would work with property owners to segregate uh, minorities. So this is how you get low-income neighborhoods, Section 8 housing, the hood in general terms. Right? People shouldn't actually think that a bunch of black people decided to get together and live in poverty. No, this was redlining that caused that. And uh, that would be happening around the time that Dumay is talking about in the book with Reagan. Of course, it happened much earlier, but it was still persistent to this time. Obviously, redlining is not a practice of today, but the vestiges of it are, right? People are still displaced. Basically, the parents and grandparents of people living in low-income neighborhoods were the ones that um, interacted with redlining. Moving on, a topic I've been very passionate about lately is the idea of eschatological beliefs affecting public policy. And Dumay does a good job covering this. Individuals like Billy Graham, Hal Lindsey, who wrote Countdown to Armageddon and The Late Great Planet Earth, all discussed how um, nuclear weapons, missiles, and war would help usher in the end times. And if you don't already see the slippery slope, let me try to make it more clear. So a lot of dispensationalists and biblical literalists believe the end times will be ushered in in uh, the Middle East, particularly in Megiddo, which is where the final battle will happen. In episode two of the podcast, I covered the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn, and I think I cover the four eschatological views commonly held by Christians today. But the only one I really pay mind to is dispensational premillennialism which takes a literal reading of the book of Revelation. And if you think about it, a lot of things need to line up for the eschaton to be ushered in under this view. So the Israeli government needs to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. They will have to construct a temple. I believe a red heifer is involved somewhere in there. Hopefully uh, genetic engineering can help us get to that. Point being, if you believe Jesus is going to come back, after a prolonged amount of warfare, combat, and explosions in the Middle East. This makes you less inclined to help. This also makes you more indifferent to suffering in the Middle East. Many people may try to fight back on this, but I put a lot of time into these thoughts. And I see a lot of evidence, not only in this book, but in a lot of the rhetoric today. Dumay goes on to note, When it came to risk of nuclear annihilation, Evangelical theology's emphasis on eternal life for the faithful helped mitigate such earthly terrors. In end-time scenarios, they believed God would protect them. A nuclear holocaust might even be part of God's plan. Dumay then goes on to discuss the Nicaraguan drug war, which was just a mess under the Reagan administration, an unjust conflict against supposed pseudo-communists in Nicaragua which, conversely, brought a lot of drugs into low-income neighborhoods in America. At the same time, asymmetrical drug laws against minorities were increasing. 
you ever wonder why America has such a large proportion of its population imprisoned? It's because of the drug laws. I don't believe all drugs should be legal. You'll never find me saying that. But the war on cocaine and crack, two of the same drugs, one associated with rich white people, another with minorities, and the asymmetry in prison sentences, also with the um, laws against marijuana, which should obviously be legal uh, when compared to cigarettes and alcohol. Out of cigarettes, alcohol, and marijuana, uh, though I don't think any of those are beneficial for society, one of those is the least destructive, and we don't need to play intellectual mind games to know which one that is. Anyways, Reagan, Nicaraguan drug war, obviously supported by uh, American evangelicals. That's really all you need to know about that part. Now again, I am a Christian, and I believe in the tenets of Christianity, but I believe a conservative, good, and honest reading of the scriptures reveal a different attitude than that of evangelicals. And I can't expect complete allegiance to my philosophies, and evangelicals expect it for theirs, but I did see a good sign in the book with the rise of promise keepers. So uh, a man named Bill McCartney, a football coach, um, had some personal trauma happen and uh, became a Christian and started Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers was a movement in America uh, of evangelicals, and it fostered a lot of support among men. Uh, it promoted being in touch with emotions, being fair to your wife and your kids, being honest, and being vulnerable. This is, in light of all the other contents of the book, a step in the right direction. They were anti-segregation, anti-racism, and promoted a lot of progressive values. And interestingly enough, it became very popular. A lot of men flocked to Promise Keeper events. But when you contrast this to the philosophies at the time that we've covered thus far in the book, you could see that these are in direct opposition to the hyper-militant, hyper-masculine, and hyper-misogynistic attitudes of evangelicals of the time. Dume notes how one evangelical responded, writing, Unfortunately, the church was part of the problem. Failing to present the true Jesus, it instead depicted him as a meek and gentle milk-toast character, a man who never could have inspired brawny fishermen like Peter to follow him. It was time to replace the Sunday school Jesus with warrior Jesus. And a lot of other evangelicals were against the vulnerability with emotions, believing emotions to be a feminine trait, while many of the individuals and leaders in the Promise Keeper movement thought that these were shared among the genders. Dumaine notes that, uh, one quote here being, they will survive the scars and broken bones of boyhood, but they cannot survive being feminized. And the demonization of feminine traits among men, even though now, thanks to uh, science, we know that is a spectrum, and people lean in different directions, having more or less feminine traits. Anyways, they treated the feminization of men as a process that could be done. You could feminize someone. And though it may seem like that today, 
The feminine traits that they're discussing in the book, I believe, are beneficial to people. Being in touch with your emotions, being sacrificial, being compassionate, and being willing to talk and not go straight to guns or fighting or arguments is, I mean, in all sense of the idea, good. Particularly in a time where a lot of the men lived through the Korean War, Vietnam War, there were still a lot of World War II veterans around, and tensions in the Middle East were picking up. And of course you had the Red Scare with Communism and the Nicaraguan Drug War. War was a big theme, and I'm not saying this is right, but you could take the idea of combat and the threats to your country and frame that if your men are feminized, you will get taken over by other countries. Following this time, the rise of purity culture came, which of course put little um, claims of modesty on men and more on women. This, and I know I'm using this term a lot, was an asymmetrical time of expectations. Women were given essentially manuals on how to dress and act, but men were promoted to think about the rewards of marriage and all the sex they could have. And of course, we think of times today. Men are praised for the amount of sex they have, and women demonized. It certainly is a shame that evangelical culture reeks of intellectual laziness. A man named Elridge quotes, A woman sins when she tries to control her world, when she's grasping rather than vulnerable, when she seeks to control her own adventure rather than share in the adventure of a man. This is, as I said earlier, the loss of autonomy of the woman's psyche. And strangely, at the institution I attend, Dallas Theological Seminary, and around a lot of the cultures that I'm in, because obviously I'm surrounded by evangelicals, women support these ideas. Not explicitly. They wouldn't say what Elridge says, but they support these ideas. I confronted a girl in class one time regarding women in positions of leadership. She said she wants a man to protect her. She wants a man to guide her. She doesn't feel she's sufficient to do it. This is, is proof of the brainwashing. She believes her brain is less capable of figuring out the economy to make a living. She believes that she's going to be attacked, not physically, but psychologically and financially, or optionally, like what road to take in life, without a man. She has fallen for it. And I don't speak much on the topic because, as a man, it puts me in an awkward position. But I feel a little outraged when the people I'm trying to advocate for are resisting the advocacy. Now, a lot of times in history, we could look at a situation um, in the terms that I just framed as, well, maybe I shouldn't be advocating for what I'm advocating. But we have enough women and enough philosophy even to know how to approach the subject. Women are capable. And if they want to be uh, separate or autonomous, they should have the right to do so. And they should at least be able to frame it differently, uh, saying it's more of a personal endeavor, rather than saying women, biologically and as created by God, are less capable. Right? The language we use and how we frame this is critical. I observe day in and day out people taking personal preferences 
or opinions that are often out of bad heart or ill intent, and using a biblical theology that is completely synthetic and artificial to justify it. Right? Take the Second Amendment, for example. Now, um, this is uh, about a week or two after the Nashville shooting, where a um, individual killed three kids and three adults at a Christian school. So I'm going to try to be sensitive to the topic. The gun debate is a long and well-fought debate on both sides. Now, I am a gun owner, and I believe that people should be able to have access to some type of firearm. Now, the caliber and the nature of that firearm, we cannot pretend that there is no debate there. Speaking from an objective standpoint, both sides bring something to the table. Now, of course, there's radical extremes on both sides, and I believe I typically fall to the more left end of the spectrum. I believe the presence and existence of the NRA is insane, and I think it's anti-intellectual to say that the Founding Fathers crafting the Second Amendment um, would craft the same document had they known about the horrors of modern technology. Now, again, I own a firearm, but I don't believe it's a binary. I believe there are realms in this worth debating. The type of firearm, the amount of ammo, um, and how our institutions are protected. And I believe there's a lot of facets to this. Now, that's all besides the point. My point is, you got individuals uh, in the NRA community, the 2A community, the come and get it community, the if you knock on my door and try to take my gun, I will kill you community, that believe access to an AR-15 is God-given. That right is mandated by Jesus Christ, the Lord Almighty. You get these specimens like Charlie Kirk and Alex Jones who say, oh, you're trying to take the guns. Well, you know who else tried to take the guns? Adolf Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot, Stalin. All these guys took guns. And so if you are um, in this gun debate, you are not concerned about the lives of children. You are not concerned about the safety of others. No, you are a Nazi. You are acting like Hitler acted. If you believe there should be gun regulation, well, you're like Stalin. That's what Stalin did. If you ever wanted to not have to worry about facts, logic, and reason in an argument, and you just wanted to invoke fear in the audience, that's how you do it. Hey guys, the guy I'm debating against, don't worry about his points, but just know he's acting just like Stalin did. The more we use this language of fear, and the more we create synthetic theologies to justify things that have nothing to do with uh, God and his plan to redeem the world, the more we can't be surprised when mass division and demonization of good faith actors is at play. Dumais does not take a side in these debates, at least not within the book, but she does warn about using the theologies to justify the points. Moving on, if not already enough, more hyper-masculine, misogynistic, and military-like language arises uh, post-9-11 
with revivals called Godmen, led by a guy named Brad Stein. This guy encouraged men to kick ass, grab your sword, say, okay, family, I'm going to lead you. Profanity was encouraged. Liberals, atheists, and the politically correct were denigrated, and men were called upon to combat the wussification of America. You really see the throwing out of Jesus' attitude towards the destitutes, the poor, and humanity in general in comments like this. Speakers like Paul Coughlin urged Christian men and pastors to be good, not nice, and warned that in doing so, they would surely make enemies. Forget the Jesus who avoids confrontation, who turns the other cheek. That bearded lady Jesus was a bore, just like the men who followed him. Even their wives found them boring. Godmen participants watched video clips of karate fights, car chases, and jackass-style stunts, offered prayers of thanks to God for their testosterone, and raised voices in manly anthems like Grow a Pair, a song lamenting the feminization of men by the culture crowd, a song in which men pledged to cowboy up, to join the battle, to jump in the saddle, to grab a sword, and yes, to grow a pair. Around the same time, the big homeschooling movement became much more present. The idea of the homeschooling movement was to maintain uh, evangelical principles within the family, as schools were becoming a lot more liberal. And uh, I don't actually mean liberal, I just mean they were just being reasonable. So the homeschooling idea allowed you to maintain the semblance of the patriarchy. It also allowed you to teach young earth creationism in a literal reading of Revelation. It allowed you to deny all that we know in modern science and geology and archaeology and allowed you to twist history in a way to make sure the natives, the slaves, and anyone that was foreign was an enemy. Howard Phillips arrives on the scene, a big proponent of the birther movement. Uh, he started Quiverful, um, which is a movement for women. It says here that Quiverful women had a critical role to play in birthing an army of God. The culture wars needed as many soldiers as possible. Outbreeding opponents was the first step to outvoting them. This is where we, they're, they're not hiding it. There's no subliminal messaging. It is a war. And anyone that disagrees with you is the opponent. And of course, regarding voting, it's purely political. After this, Dumay introduces the great character of Mark Driscoll. Now, I'm not going to really spend much time on Mark Driscoll because yesterday, actually, I just finished the Christianity Today Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, which is an excellent podcast. And I encourage all of y'all to go listen to it. If you really want to learn about Mark Driscoll, in the insanity that was his brain. Um, you, you really should listen to this. It is a well-crafted document. And um, Dumay just briefly covers him. There's a lot more in the podcast. Essentially, Driscoll helped found uh, Mars Hill in Seattle, Washington, which was one of the more unchurched areas in America. And the uh, tyranny-like complex of him completely took over. They turned into to be one of the biggest churches in America at the time. And he treated Christianity as a vehicle for his own fame. I mean, this man was the cause of much trauma for a lot of people. There are many people to this day that are, um, they either left the faith 
because of this man. They refused to go to churches. And he really skewed the Christian perception in America. And if you think I'm overreacting or mischaracterizing him, go listen to the testimonies of people that, I mean, and I'm just going to say it, they're, they're victims. Go listen to the victims of the Mars Hill fallout. He, like many others in the past, viewed uh, the Christian marriage through the lens of sex and women should be uh, total submission. And so there were women in his congregation that were uncomfortable doing particular sex acts with their husbands and would uh, meet with him for guidance. And he would encourage them, go home, do these uh, sex acts that you're uncomfortable with. This is serving God. And like everything else, 2A, abortion, all of this, you just create a theology to justify your wants and needs. And that way, if you argue against it, you're arguing against God. This is how he did almost all of his uh, mandates. Everything he did was an ordinance by God. So if you were against it, you were against God. And of course, he believed the church had a special aura of protection from God. But again, it fell, went bankrupt. But after it, he never repented. I mean, this man took his $650,000 of severance and went and started Trinity Church in, I believe it's Arizona. I could be wrong. And he's teaching the same things. This guy's on Instagram. You can Instagram him right now, and you can listen to him proudly championing the same ideas that ruined the faith of so many at Mars Hill. That's all I really have to say about him. I mean, there is just a well of heinous things this man has said and done to other people. I mean, his views on gay individuals, the LGBT movement in general, uh, people that wear pastel colors were uh, feminizing the nation. Um, His fraudulent actions of using Tide dollars to buy hundreds of thousands of copies of his own book to get in on the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, it goes on and on. So we'll move on from Mr. Mark Driscoll. Just uh, be sure to treat yourself to his Instagram and uh, view it for yourself. Now, entering to the more recent modern era of Obama, Trump, John McCain, and individuals like this, um, a lot of my views and opinions on Trump were covered in Trumpocracy. So, I'm not going to lament too much more here, but the hijacking, or I guess continued hijacking, of evangelical culture in America continues under Trump to this day. I mean, I delight in watching Dave Ramsey on Instagram just confront these lunatics at these rallies and listening to how they navigate their worldviews is astonishing. But a common yet intellectually inconsistent theme that runs throughout all of these supporters of all of these backwards politicians is Christianity. Take this opinion by a man named Franklin Graham regarding Obama. The president's problem, according to Graham, was that he was born a Muslim. The seed of Islam had passed through his father to him, and the Islamic world sees the president as one of theirs. 
Graham saw a pattern of hostility to traditional Christianity by the Obama administration, when Muslims seemed to be getting a pass. Of course, around the same time, you have Donald Trump and his goons creating the birther hoax that Obama somehow managed to get all the way through the primaries, all the way through the debates, and none of these debate officials, none of these regulators decided to check his birth certificate. I mean, you spend two minutes, you spend two seconds thinking about that claim, and you can see how unintellectual it is. Now, thankfully, Dume does uh, provide some real estate to the Christian leaders that spoke out against Donald Trump during his presidency. So you have people like Beth Moore, a female Christian author, a person like Julie Royce, um, individuals like this. Uh, I remember even Matt Chandler was an unexpected opponent to the Trump administration. You have these Christian leaders, mass influence, thankfully, you know, actually reading their Bible for a minute and seeing the clear contradictions that Trump is. But at this point, observing all of the history we've covered so far, the evangelical movement in America, uh, the people that would, of course, go on to support and vote for Donald Trump, had had its worldview solidified. Now, when I say this next part, I'm going to give this preamble that I gave in the beginning. When I said Christianity and evangelical culture are not synonyms, there are many aspects of evangelicalism that I argue are anti-Christian. However, the movement runs under the banner of Christianity. So, with that said, Dumay makes this brilliant note here that evangelicals hadn't betrayed their values. Donald Trump was the culmination of their half-century-long pursuit of a militant Christian masculinity. I want to point out that Donald Trump did not hijack the minds. I guess he did of some people. But for the most part, he used their minds and worldview as a vehicle. And honestly, my observation is, if we continue to have lunatic ideas, such as the Democrats and Fauci are poisoning a vaccine for us, or that we can go through the 21st and 22nd century without institutions, without an established media, without an established source of truth, we cannot act surprised when we face moral, social, and economic decay, right? The, the more Christians or the more evangelicals that treat their chiropractor like going to the doctor, that think that putting an onion or a potato in their sock at night is the same thing as taking medication, this is insanity, and it can't continue. And we need more people to criticize these disgusting and idiotic ideas. Dumay has written an excellent document here, and I encourage everyone to read it. This book truly is brilliant. I covered maybe 10%, maybe less. I certainly did uh, not do it the justice it deserves. To truly gain a grip on how to approach the rest of the century while maintaining a good sense of Christianity and conservative Christian values and repelling against the idiocy of evangelicalism. You gotta read this book. I know I appear to bash Christianity very harshly on this podcast, 
and I want to try to clear up some misunderstandings. I am not opposed to any of the doctrines of Christianity, but I do believe the way they are interpreted has been extremely unauthentic. Now, a lot of people can see this as a slippery slope, so you can say something like, oh, I approve of Christianity, but every theologian is incorrect. That is not what I'm getting at here. Rather, I want to say that I believe skepticism and hesitation should be had when reading any of the scriptures. And this doesn't mean you have to denounce the faith, but this does mean there should be a level of ambiguity when reading. And I believe upon knowing the Lord Jesus and understanding that there is a document that does a pretty good job um, expressing his coming, his actions, and his leaving, the love for him will come in reducing that ambiguity as much as possible. But also, intellectual honesty should cause you to surrender at certain points that there is just not a postulation, a dogmatism on certain aspects. We will not be Christians because it is comfortable, because it fixes our uh, fear of death and our concern for existentialism. No, we will be Christians because it aligns with reality. And when we read something in Scripture that clearly contradicts reality, we should view it as maybe uh, a problem with how we're reading it. And of course, this does not mean synthesizing all Scripture to uh, our worldview. When reading Scripture that appears to contradict reality, we often only allow our decision to fall into one of two binaries. Either Scripture is wrong and the document is a lie, or uh, we need to ignore reality. Well, those two binaries are not really where you can find integrity, right? There has to be more options. And when I confront the scriptures and the champions of certain teachings, I often begin to believe that the reading of these teachings is incorrect. I often find that the narrow-minded worldview of many evangelicals and fundamentalist readers actually restricts the glory of God. If you are denouncing evolution, you're denouncing millions and millions of potential years of life development and cataclysmic events that have gotten us to where we are today. You've cut off the ability to see God authoring these events in a way that bring us to where we are. I mean, it really is glorious. When you cut off molecular sciences, you restrict looking at God working and authoring nature in a way to operate on the smallest conceivable parts of matter. When you treat logic and rationalism as anti-biblical and not a fundamental character trait of God, you stop yourself from being able to devise solutions to some of the biggest and most pressing problems facing society today. I love the Christian faith, and I love my faith community, but I worry about its viability if we continue to act in irrational and anti-intellectual ways. If we keep using language like Charlie Kirk, that is demonizing and vilifying and purely militaristic, we can't be surprised when culture wants to abandon us. 
even saying things like, well, I don't really like the way Charlie talks, but he does make some good points. Right? We need to understand that these good points can be found elsewhere without the tons and tons of anti-intellectual bigotry that come with him. The reason I'm hearkening on this guy is because there's so many people in my community that support him. When I check his followers, his 2.1 million followers, I have to see a huge list of mutual followers. And that concerns me. I believe Charlie Kirk is just as idiotic, irrational, and dangerous as many of the bad faith actors we've read in Dume's book here. Now, we can't change history. We can't change the past. But as Christians that want to see the faith flourish and want more people to come to know Christ, we have the opportunity to change the future. We can confront and criticize bad ideas when we hear them. In fact, I believe we're called to do that. I really appreciate you guys listening to this. I know this was a long one. I know it's been a while. Uh, I have some really excellent books that I want to get reviewed on here. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I got a second mic and a good interface. So hopefully, uh, God willing, I can get some interviews with some authors. All right. I'm going to leave with some words from Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. When I read these, I was convicted, impacted, and motivated. Dallas writes, And genuinely good people are those who, from the deepest levels of their understanding and motivation, are committed to promoting the good of everyone they deal with, including, of course, God and themselves. In this they have, with God's assistance, gone beyond rightness understood as merely not doing anything wrong, beyond the goodness of scribes and Pharisees, and are acting from their inward union of mind and heart with the heavens. Thanks for listening. Farewell. Thank you.